You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 19th of January 2023 on Monocle 24, The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Jacinta Ardern says she no longer has enough fuel in the tank to continue as New Zealand's Prime Minister. She'll step down early next month. We'll have more from Wellington. Then... The time the free world uses to think is used by the terrorist state to kill Time is of the essence. Both Putin and Zelensky claim victory in Ukraine, but it will depend on help from the West. We'll have analysis. Then to Turkey, where elections may be brought forward. What does that mean for the country and the wider world? Plus... We're going to talk about implementation, whether we're talking about net zero goals, we're talking about affordability crisis. Cities are where that's happening. We'll check in with our team in Davos, where we hear about long-term goals for cities. With culture news, a look at the papers from Paris, where the country faces strikes and protests today, and the view from Tokyo on the possible demolition of an iconic sporting stadium. That's all ahead, here on The Globalist, live from London. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern has resigned. She became the world's youngest female head of government when she was elected Prime Minister in 2017 at age 37. She says she'll leave the post next month. This has been the most fulfilling five and a half years of my life. I am leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. Uh, Amelia Wade is a political reporter at News Hub in New Zealand and joins me down the line from Napier, where Ardern made the announcement. Amelia, welcome to the show. Did this come out of the blue? Kia Georgina. Yes, this was a total surprise. Um, when Jacinda Ardern came in and she said she was going to announce two things, we had an inkling that it was going to be the election date, which is October 14, but then she went on to say that she had been reflecting on her leadership. And as she said, those words reflecting, there was an audible gasp in the room. Some of her staff were standing in the back, clearly very teary-eyed as Ardern's own voice broke. Ardern's popularity has been sinking. It's been, last year was very tough for Jacinda Ardern and her government. Uh, The cost of living crisis and the sort of ongoing uh, COVID restrictions and precautions um, were really starting to take their toll. But this didn't come, this was a total surprise. Even those who knew her most, were meant to know their every, her every movement uh, didn't know about this. She said that she'd only consulted with a few of her closest uh, colleagues, her inner sanctum, about this decision over the summer and then told her cabinet this morning, her caucus just after that, 
and then got up on that stage and told New Zealand that she was going to be stepping down as Prime Minister. She said in her speech that she was being upfront about her reason to go, that, as you say, no more fuel in the tank. She said she'd now have time to take her daughter to school, that she could marry her partner finally. Is it widely presumed that that is all there is to it? Or, or do you think that there are personal or political reasons beyond that? I think there's absolutely no doubt that Sindra Ardern is exhausted. The last five years have seen um, some of the biggest crises and disasters in recent memory. We had um, sort of early on and back in 2019, we had the March 15 Christchurch mosque terror attack, in which 51 people were murdered. And then not long after that, uh, we had the Fakari White Island uh, volcano eruption, um, which was also a massive tragedy. And then, of course, COVID-19, which was has, has for everyone around the world has just been relentless. So she is clearly exhausted. But I do think there was clearly a political calculation in this as well. There is a visceral hatred of Jacinda Ardern in some of the electorate. And you can tell that she, she sort of wants to turn the page on that and perhaps give her party a fresh chance ahead of the election later this year. Um, And to also go out on a high, to have not lost an election. So clearly that would have made up um, some of her consideration and her deliberation in coming to this decision. And who's her likely successor and what's the process for choosing him or her? Well, that's That's the big question now, isn't it? Because they're not just going to be the new leader of the party. They will be Prime Minister of New Zealand until October 14, the next election, and then whatever happens after that. There is a natural um, successor for Jacinda Ardern, and that would have been her deputy, um, the deputy prime minister, the finance minister, Grant Robertson, who is extremely experienced and has put his hat in the ring in previous um, sort of uh, in previous uh, leadership contests in the Labour Party. But he's already ruled himself out. He says he won't be stepping up into that role. So that sort of has then blown open uh, the contest. Uh, as to who will then step up and take that, uh, take go for that job. The obvious choice would perhaps be uh, Chris Hipkins, who led uh, the COVID response here in New Zealand. So throughout the um, pandemic and when we were in lockdown, we were having 1pm press conferences daily with Chris Hipkins. And so the public really got to know him. He's got good um, brand recognition and he's, also very experienced as a politician. He's got a really good political antennae. So he would be the obvious choice. But then, of course, let the Labour caucus have been known to um, throw everything out and uh, ego comes up against common sense. There are a few others who have also been widely spe- speculated to be putting their hat in the ring. There's a uh, transport minister and then sort of a junior minister in her cabinet as well. But it will, we will find out on Sunday, that's when the caucus are going to be meeting, and they will decide who will be the next leader and the next Prime Minister of New Zealand. If that doesn't go ahead, then it will go to a wider vote within the Labour Party membership. Um, but we should be finding out at the end of the week who her successor will be. And is her Labour Party likely to win the next election in October? Oh, well, this has turned the entire election on its head. 
And, uh, Jacinda Ardern on our, our most recent poll was on 32%. So she wasn't even guaranteed to win it. Um, and she wasn't be able to, she couldn't govern with that number. So it wasn't even a sure thing with uh, Jacinda Ardern at the helm of the party, which she clearly knew. And so what, but what we were expecting has all gone out the window. It has completely turned everything on its head. Um, where it's now going to be a long battle. Everything is going to be on the line for this new Labour leader. What do you think her legacy will be? I mean, youngest female prime minister when she when she first came in, going out on a high. I mean, there are many, many positive things to be said for her leadership. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely no question. Jacinda Ardern was a remarkable leader. As you said, she was the youngest who went into that office. She also had a baby um, when she was Prime Minister, only the second head of state to do so. She was like personally loved by a lot of New Zealanders. And in fact, that was reflected in the 2020 election that we had, that she had a historic win, the total majority, which allowed her to sort of govern without any other coalition parties. Um, she also led, as I was said before, the through New Zealand through some of its darkest days, that mosque attack, the uh, the volcano eruption, and then, of course, COVID-19. She also has some flagship policies that she is very proud of, the Zero Carbon Act. Um, she has also made uh, the government legally accountable for child poverty. So there will be that legacy, and I think that is what Jacinda Ardern is hoping to protect by bowing out at this early stage. Mm. And I mean, she said she said lovely things that, that political leaders can be both uh, empathetic and strong. She's talked about kindness and so on. How is New Zealand taking the news? I think mu- much like many of her, her caucus, quite shell-shocked, to be honest. Um, a, lot, a lot of surprise. I don't think anyone really saw this, but... Um, as I was saying before, there were there were sort of two versions of Jacinda Ardern. There was Jacinda Ardern on the world stage where she absolutely shone. She's last year she managed to get two of the most coveted political um, sit downs, the face to face, the grin and grits um, in the world. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden and China's President Xi Jinping. Um, she was on talk shows on, I think, on the cover of Vogue. She was sort of beloved around the world and beloved by many in New Zealand. But as I was saying before, that star was fading and she'd become part and parcel with the COVID response and COVID itself. And people were just over it. And so there will be sort of two two ways that Jacinda Ardern will be um, remembered, depending perhaps on, on which side of the fence you sit. Well, how refreshing to have a leader who recognises it's time to go. Uh, Amelia, thank you very much indeed. That's Amelia Wade there in New Zealand.
Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Zelensky have been making public statements about winning the war. Putin declared that victory in Ukraine is inevitable as he toured a weapons factory in St. Petersburg. This was broadcast on local television. Zelensky addressed a worldwide audience, including many political, military and financial leaders, as he gave a televised address to the World Economic Forum in Davos. Well, I'm joined now by the Russia analyst Stephen Diel. Stephen, tell us more about Putin's speech. Um, Putin came out with uh, some of the usual lies. Um, he said that uh, the reason that Russia had gone into Russian troops had gone into Ukraine was to stop the war um, that Ukraine has been waging against Russia uh, for years now. I mean, uh, it's, it's it's almost beyond belief. I mean, this really turns reality on its head um, because, of course, Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2014. They seized Crimea and invaded parts of eastern Ukraine. Um, under this pretense of uh, de defending Russians who live in Ukraine. Um, I've met in the last, well, over the last few years, and, and particularly over the last 11 months, a number of Russian-speaking Ukrainians uh, who have now fled as, as refugees, and, and none of them say that they were persecuted in any way, for, that, they, you know, that they could speak Russian quite freely in their daily life, um, this is, you know, it's a complete myth that Putin has, has uh, put forward uh, and he continues to do it. It's complete nonsense. I mean, he was very, he sounded very confident. Do, do you think he really is? <laughs> He's very good at sounding confident. Um, he has to. This is, this is, if you like, his old KGB training where uh, he had to sound good and look good, even if uh, he had doubts inside. Um, I think though, the, a change since those days is that he probably believes what he's saying. Um, we know, for example, the reason he started the war was he had very, very bad intelligence from the Russian intelligence service, um, who really led him to believe that uh, Kiev would be taken in three days after the invasion on the 24th of February last year, uh, and and that uh, Ukrainians would greet Russians with flowers and so on. Um, uh, he, I, I think a major factor was the last couple of years when really he shut himself away in a bunker during the pandemic, surrounded himself with an even smaller group of advisors than he'd had before, all of whom tell him what he wants to hear uh, as opposed to what the reality might be. Um, and I think as a result of that, you know, his, the intelligence he's getting is not very good and it really has put a picture into his mind that, that is, just doesn't meet reality. Mm. Now, it was widely believed that he would announce a second mobilisation. Uh, he didn't really do that, though, did he? No, he hasn't done it yet. Um, and the, one, of the, one of the problems with him having so few advisers around him is that it's very difficult to know exactly what he's thinking. And also, of course, he, he can say one thing and the next day do something completely different. Because um, back in September, when the mobilisation of 300,000 uh, Russians took place. Bef up until then, uh, people, he'd been saying, no, 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 I'm not going to declare a mobilization. Uh, and, you know, rumours were abounding. And then, of course, he came out and said it. So it, it, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that in the next couple of days, he could announce another mobilization, possibly of half a million men. Um, and there are already reports that uh, the borders are being tightened so that Russians, young Russian men, who are the ones likely to be called up, uh, won't be able to leave the country in droves, as of course they did after the uh, the September mobilisation. Um, so it's, it's, it really is a case of, you know, watch this space. Um, a mobilisation could come at any time. Of course, if it does come, then he is upping the ante back home because the more people who get called up, um, the more he tries to, uh, to, to push them forward, 
um, the, the more discontent there is as well. Uh, because we know that, that that a lot of these soldiers who are sent there have no proper training. They get there with half a uniform. Um, there's a, there's a, a story being reported um, in the last 24 hours of uh, soldiers who are now facing charges because they they defected. They went. They got a taxi and went back to Russia because they said when we got there we didn't have uniforms. We didn't have any food. Um, they really are being used as cannon fodder. And of course, the more that these stories get round. Uh, the the less the, will be the support for the war amongst the ordinary population. So he's it's it's a, it's a risk that he's running. If he calls a mobilisation, um, there's going to be even more discontent in society as well. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, Zelensky was addressing world leaders at Davos. What did he say? Well, he the the principal thing that he was saying was, look, we need weaponry. You know, you don't stop messing around and saying, oh yes, eventually we'll give it. We need it. Now, um, he rather like when he addressed the, um, the Congress in the USA, when, of course, he went there. Um, this was, of course, a video link to Davos. Uh, but he actually spoke in English again, which is a very good move. Um, he, he reads it, obviously, but um, he has a knowledge of English. But he's he's saying, look, um, you know, you keep you keep making promises. Um, you know, we need the equipment now. And they they do. Um, one thing which I will I don't often praise the British government, but one thing I will praise them for this week is they have said they are sending tanks, um, Challenger tanks to uh, to Ukraine. And um, the the Germans keep talking about sending Leopard tanks. And then you get a thing that Rheinmetall, who's the company that makes them, says, oh, well, they won't be ready until 2024, which is complete nonsense. Um, the armies of NATO need to send the equipment they have now. It's needed now in Ukraine to, to fight the war. Um, and undoubtedly, the more Western equipment and, the, and, and top quality Western equipment with Ukrainians properly trained to use it, that you that arrives in Ukraine, the greater the chances of Ukraine winning this war. The Russian army has not been fighting well. It's been fighting brutally. It's been uh, fighting uh, in in a, a very vicious way. And of course, um, also the Russians have been attacking civilian infrastructure across Ukraine. Uh, but on the ground, if the Ukrainians get these this Western weaponry, the chances that they can win the battle there will be greatly increased. And this is basically what Zelensky's message was to Davos. Mm. Of course, Western allies are meeting on Friday at a US airbase in Germany to discuss just that. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, uh, says that it's a pivotal moment in the war and, and Ukraine needs a significant increase in weapons. It does look like that call is going to be heeded. But do you think that this is in preparation then on both sides for a counteroffensive in the spring? Oh, undoubtedly, um, both sides are gearing up for that. Um, uh, the during it's been a funny, funny winter in the sense of of, of weather in, in Ukraine. Um, the milder the weather, the more difficult it is to fight because the ground gets softer. When the ground is frozen over, um, which hasn't often been the case, it's been the case in recent weeks, but it hasn't been uh, as it as it often is in in Ukraine. Um, but if the ground's frozen, then then you can carry out much more um, rapid movement. Um, but come the spring and indeed uh, after, the, after the, the, the soggy period at the start of spring, um, both sides know that that's, that's going to be a time when uh, there'll be a chance for greater movement of military equipment. And so they are gearing up for it. So that is why the West needs to send this equipment now so that it's there ready for that. Stoltenberg, Mr. Stoltenberg, Jan Stoltenberg, the, uh, the NATO Secretary General, has been a great flag waver for Ukraine. And um, I think that the West has to has to hope that 
he does actually get the, uh, the NATO allies on board tomorrow and that they send the equipment. Because basically a crucial message which politicians really need to get out to people is that we are in the Third World War. This is what the Third World War looks like. This is how it starts. Think back to the Second World War. Um, people say, well, you know, it started with on the, on the 3rd of September 1939. It really started before that when uh, Germany uh, annexed the Sudetenland, when the Anschluss with, with Austria took place. The, these were all the steps towards it. That's the, what we're in now. So, so uh, Western politicians mustn't fool themselves or indeed fool their populations to, into thinking, oh, well, this could turn into the Third World War. No, we're already there. We've got to be acting now. That's crucial. Stephen, thank you very much indeed. That's Stephen DL, the Russian analyst there. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's 10.21 in Ankara, 7.21 here in London. Now, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has signalled that the country's next general election might be held in May, bringing the vote forward by a month. The presidential and parliamentary elections represent a tough challenge for the ruling Justice and Development Party, which has been in power now for over two decades. Erdogan's government has come under criticism for eroding human rights, as well as overseeing soaring inflation. Well, I'm joined now by Ruth Michelson, who's a journalist based in Istanbul. Ruth, thanks for coming on the show. What's the thinking behind this potential date change? Well, the advantage for Erdogan is to bring the election forward, show that he is in control of the schedule. Um, It also means that uh, he would not be scheduling the election on a date that uh, the opposition would prefer. They want the election to be even sooner uh, in early April, if you can believe it, which is little bit strange because the opposition remains divided and hasn't announced their candidate yet. Um, but they, their argument is essentially that a 6th of April or an early April election um, would not allow uh, some electoral reforms to come into place which affect small parties and could affect the size of a potential opposition coalition in the parliament. And how important are these elections for the wider region? Enormously important. I mean, this is an election that is essentially a referendum on Erdogan's rule and um, on, uh, you know, two decades of the AKP, his his Justice and Development Party. Um, and he has been an, a pivotal figure in, in regional politics. Um, we've seen that with, for example, Turkish intervention in other parts of the region, including, including Libya, including Syria. Um, and it also represents a potential divide between, you know, does Turkey continue on a path towards increasing authoritarianism or is there a turning back that faces more towards a kind of a democratic path? And that has enormous implications, symbolic implications for a region where, let's be honest, democracy has been tested um, quite consistently over the past decade. And unfortunately, we've seen that uh, authoritarians have won more often than not. I mean, some analysts are hailing this as Turkey's most consequential election in a generation. Do you think that's a feeling uh, felt domestically? 
That is absolutely the feeling on the ground. There is um, what the opposition want is to have have this be an uh, election that is about a referendum on Erdogan and where it's less about um, what the opposition are proposing and more about what the uh, six-party opposition coalition say is is the pivotal need to uh, to vote Erdogan out of office, basically. Um, and so there is this enormous sense of how consequential this election is. Uh, but at the same time, unfortunately, we are seeing at the moment an increasingly divided, fractured opposition where there's been some fairly public fighting among themselves within this um, six-party coalition. There's certainly been some debates about who the candidate should be to face up against Erdogan. And so, you know, taking a step back, this idea that it is important, this is a consequential election and, and in the eyes of the opposition, it's crucial to defeat Erdogan. There are some strategic issues with uh, how they're trying to prove that to the voters at the moment. It's hard to make that case when the opposition is so divided. And what's Erdogan doing to secure his re-election? Well, we've certainly seen in the past few months that he's made an effort in terms of um, domestic political reforms. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, economic problems uh, leading into this. Uh, unofficially, inflation is close to 140% here in Turkey at the moment. The Turkish lira lost half its value last year alone. Um, and we saw late last year that um, Erdogan chose to do things like raise the minimum wage by uh, 55% um, and, uh, you know, choose some economic reforms that were likely to be, you know, bring a little bit of relief to most of the, the voting public. Um, and there's also been, unfortunately, a crackdown on any potential form of uh, likely opponent, including a political ban for the mayor of Istanbul, who is one of the potential presidential candidates. And there are also efforts to potentially bar the largest Kurdish party from being able to run in the election. And that could prove to be consequential for the outcome. Uh, and I believe the retirement age in Turkey has recently changed. Will, will that affect his support? Uh, it's entirely possible. I mean, it, it, he, Erdogan is trying to position himself in this election as somebody that is in control and knows how to basically to, to alter the economy to be of benefit to Turkish people, even though there are the opposition would argue he is the one that has created a lot of these problems in the first place, certainly with the choices around the economy and a lack of central bank independence. Um, but, you know, Erdogan is sort of the political master of... Um, like a lot of potential authoritarians that have gone before him, of presenting uh, solutions to problems that his, uh, his critics would say that he's created. And that's certainly what we're likely to see as we head into this election. And in terms of the election itself, is it likely to be free and fair? Will there be any international oversight? There will, and there, it, it's quite difficult on an election of this size as a country of over 80 million people to outright rig an election. Um, and that's what we've seen with past votes that have taken place here, for example, in very contentious mayoral election for Istanbul in 2019. But that doesn't mean at the same time that uh, Erdogan and his government can't do things to tip the scales ahead of the election. So, for example, um, disbarring the largest Kurdish party um, from being able to run, um, which will be done by a court, but is 
clearly linked to the wishes of the state. Um, this is something that that could affect up to 15% of the vote. Um, and so it does tip the scales or, for example, barring the Istanbul mayor from um, being able to participate in public politics. He's a potential presidential candidate. That also has a huge impact on the opposition's ability to organize and to operate freely. So, again, we're seeing just with the timing of the election and the conditions in which it will be held, now, uh, you know, Erdogan and his party want to show that they are the ones that are in control and they are setting the terms for how this election goes. Uh, Ruth, is it a, is it a done deal? Is it, will he win? <laughs> this is the question on everybody's lips here. Every, every meeting that you have, every social gathering, this is, this is the discussion. Um, I think uh, if you... It depends who you believe, right? It's everything is so contentious, even around the timing of this, that um, you know Erdogan wants to present this as a done deal, and the opposition wants to show that they can mount a real challenge. But it's probably fair to say that you have to start with a with a candidate um, before you can do that. The polls suggest that they have a narrow lead at the moment, but they have to maintain that all the way into the late spring, and that at the moment as current conditions if current conditions continue that seems like it could be a challenge ruth thank you very much indeed that's ruth michelson in istanbul this is the globalist stay tuned The European Parliament has overwhelmingly backed the EU to list Iran's revolutionary guards as a terrorist organisation. The institution cited the repression of protesters and the supply of drones to Russia as the reasons. The Parliament has no power to compel the EU to add the organisation to its list, but it represents a clear political message to Tehran. French unions are staging a day of mass strikes and protests against President Macron's plans to push back the age of retirement. A bill due to go through Parliament will raise the official retirement age from 62 to 64. Many schools and public services will be shut and transport will be severely disrupted. And 10 Chinese snooker players face match-fixing charges as snooker's governing body investigates the sport's biggest corruption scandal. The allegations include match-fixing, betting on snooker and manipulating games. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Let's turn to Davos now, where the World Economic Forum is taking place this week. While much of the focus is on world leaders and CEOs, this is also a big opportunity for city innovators and urban activists to champion their cities. Jeff Merritt is the head of urban transformations at WEF, and earlier he spoke with Monocle's Carlotta Ribello in Davos about the forum's long-term vision and the emerging trends for cities in the next 12 months. What I love about the annual meeting here in Davos, right, is you're having people come from around the world and you're taking them out of their comfort zone. They're having to trek through the snow with big jackets and boots on. And again, we connect on the on the frustrations on that human level of like, doesn't matter if you're a billionaire, it doesn't matter if you're a head of state or maybe you're just an executive assistant. But at the end of the day, the experience is the same among all of us. And it is in many ways very much that sort of urban experience, right? We're stuck in traffic and we're frustrated, right? 
but that's the beauty of this. And then it enables us to have a really deep conversation about these pressing issues. We're not paying attention to our emails and our cell phones. Well, let's then focus on the trends for the next 12 months. I'm curious to hear your take. Of course, a lot of themes crossing the agenda here over the entire week. But with your urbanism hat on, what are some of the things that you are seeing being discussed and can foresee coming up in the next 12 months or so? Well, I think one, the the energy and the mood on the ground is very different now. On one hand, it's the fact that a lot of us haven't actually met face to face in three years since the last time we had one of these in January. But then also, I think that there's a There's a really personal connection to these big challenges that we're facing. Let me just take me, for example. I live in the in the Bay Area in San Francisco, right? Last year, I had my son that I had to pick up from preschool because there was a wildfire nearby and they were evacuating. And then right now, in the last couple of weeks, we had a mass flooding, right? Regardless of where you live in the world, where you work, what type of you know organization entity, we're all faced with these common challenges. And I think that we're fed up with just talking about these things, that there's a real focus now on implementation. If we're going to talk about implementation, whether we're talking about net zero goals, we're talking about affordability crisis, cities are where that's happening. And what I'm happy to see here right now is that transition happening, not just a macro level discussion, but okay, if we're going to see first movers in industry and government on some of these big challenges. Well, where is that actually happening? Are we actually building out the ecosystems? Are we thinking about the market that needs to develop, right? And so right now, we're seeing actually increasingly individuals sort of raising their hands and saying, I'm ready to lead on action here and the tactical steps we need to do to move some of these ideas into implementation. It reminds me of a conversation that was spilling out onto the Congress Hall yesterday, which was on climate change. People were saying, well, it's good that the conversation has moved, if you're talking about climate change, to include food security, for example. Exactly what you were describing, that you can no longer take these broader subjects without tackling the root causes or the what could be the solution. That's one example. But what are others that you could perhaps tell our listeners of, you know, actual action (laughs) taking place? Well, let me just piggyback on that element. So right now, like we have a discussion tomorrow that's looking at the urban resource nexus. So the challenges related to food, energy, and water, right? And the fact that you can't address a strategy on one without the other, you have to think holistically. And we have, for example, the head of the city of Riyadh there. We have minister from South Korea there and really talking tactically about what are the strategies that need to be in place, how we're going to put that into action. And then we have private sector leaders who are stepping up and saying, okay, we're going to be on the ground with you. And one of the things I'm really happy about here is there's a focus on long-term planning. Give you an example. We had a, a launch on Monday of this week with the president of Switzerland. 31 countries, as well as private sector leaders from real estate and construction, all rallying around a concept of they call in German Balkatur, right? It literally stands for building culture. But the idea here is that we can't, in the sense of urgency and need, we can't just throw buildings down and kind of it's not about efficiency. We need to be thinking about the long-term strategy here and how to build better, how to build quality so that we're not in a situation a few years from now where we're having to essentially start over. One of the things as well that I've been picking up here is that it's easy to criticize, I guess, the idea of like the global elite gathering in one building for a week, you know, having a great time. But the way you're describing it, and perhaps to get this point home for our listeners, is that 
things actually get done. It's not just, you know, of course, there's a lot of wealth gathered under one roof, but precisely those people are the ones that can get things done, no? Absolutely. And I think part of the beauty of this is when we have media like yourself that are here, we force commitments, right? That this is a point in time where we can get really tactical, specific commitments and we can hold folks accountable, right? And so that in many ways sets our agenda for the coming year because it says, okay, you were in Davos and you said you're going to do this. All right, by next Davos, we need to be able to show results there. So it, it has a forcing function to make sure that we come out of the gate here really running and that, you know, we make this real. It's, again, not about talk, and the media is a key part of that. You are hosting several sessions throughout the week. What are some of the themes you're focusing on, or some of the themes that you really, you know, are looking forward to elaborating and discussing further? Well, I'll tell you one topic that I'm very excited to hear be brought into the spotlight, is nature-based solutions and nature-positive cities, because we've been talking a while about net-zero cities and decarbonization. I think we've been overly looking at technology solutions here as the answer to this, but for the vast majority of the world, right, where our cities are growing, it's in the global south. And in these regions that are under-resourced, it's just not realistic. It doesn't make sense for us to take these high-tech solutions. And in many cases, a more nature-positive approach where we're looking at how to bring nature into city and find that right balance can address these much, much more quickly. And they have the upside also of creating a lot of new economic development opportunities and social mobility. That was Jeff Merritt speaking to Monocle's Carlotta Rubello at Davos. And tune into the Urbanist Premier tonight at 2000 London time to hear Carlotta's full report from the World Economic Forum and what it means for global cities. This is The Globalist. in Hong Kong, 8.37 in Zurich. And let's continue now with today's papers. Joining me from Paris is Agnès Poirier, the journalist and author of Notre Dame, The Soul of France. Uh, Agnès, good morning to you. Good morning. Is the country in chaos? We understand it's the first day of the strike. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Uh, How's this being reported and why is the country at a standstill? Well, I mean, it's not at a standstill yet. You know, we'll we'll um, see that in a few hours' time, basically. Um, and we, I, I went to uh, Le Parisien uh, this morning uh, to read about this, uh, especially in its editorial. It writes about, I quote, the voice of the street. So here we go again. And it refers to the first day of strikes in France to protest against what? This time, the pension reform. And one of the reforms President Macron was elected for. Um, And the stakes are high because basically, I mean, it's an arm wrestling contest, as as always. The president is testing his authority and the trade unions, their power of disruption. So is this the first day of a paralysis that will last weeks? That's possible. It happened in the past, uh, like in um, 1995. but the other question is, will the French back the strikers and endure, you know, weeks of strikes or will they back the government? That's possible. Um, the interesting thing is that President Macron will be in Madrid with almost half his government to sign a bilateral treaty with Spain. Um, but he will be, I think, watching keenly. It, I mean, it's a question of figures tonight. This is what will be 
everyone will be doing. And the trade unions are expecting and they need really one million demonstrators in the streets of France uh, to, um, you know, to, to show that they are meaning business. Uh, it would be a very good beginning for them. Um, Another worry, another question for the government um, is whether the students will join the movement, uh, perhaps not today, but in the next uh, next days or so, because this would be a game changer, as it often is in France. And we have time. I mean, two weeks is uh, a long time in politics, because that's the time before which the bill is presented in Parliament. Um, because, in effect, there's a very strong chance that it will be voted. Um, let's not forget that the reform has really been watered down since it was last. Uh, showed in Parliament uh, just before COVID and it had to be postponed because of the pandemic. So what are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about just raising the retirement age to 64 by 2030. Uh, as a point of comparison, it's it's already 60 in the UK or in Germany. And if the reform goes ahead, France will still uh, retire earlier in 2030 than almost all EU nations do now. But why is the issue so sensitive? Well, because in France, most people rely on the state pension system, which is very different, which is actually there's just not one um, pension regime. There are 42 different regimes, and including some very favourable deals for, for instance, uh, rail workers or, or ballet dancers. So there's a lot of uh, at stake. And uh, today's the first day of, uh, of a long festival uh, of strikes, potentially. But as you say, of course, that was part of his mandate, Macron's mandate, and he was voted in with people knowing that. <laughs> yes, but that's France. And so um, there's a manifesto, there's, a, you know, a president, and then a few weeks after his election, uh, whoever he is, whether it's President Macron or somebody else, the French love um, forgetting the reasons why they, they elected somebody, and they love hating him as well. Um, and uh, and also it's, it's that uh, eternal... Uh, you know, uh, spirit of protest and taking the streets. You know, there's this arm wrestling contest uh, for almost everything is is almost a condition to democracy in France. Mm. Uh, let's look at another paper. This is Le Monde. Uh, and they ask this interesting question. Will Macronism survive Macron, who, of course, can't seek a third mandate in 2027? And I wonder if we could start by perhaps defining what Macronism is. <laughs> Well, he, you know, Macron built his own uh, brand, if you like, and, and in just 18 months, remember, before he was elected the first time, his movement, um, which was a movement then, it is now a party, it's called the Renaissance. Um, but it's very novel because there was a, a complete paradigm shift in French politics. Suddenly, um, today, suddenly, and it's it's uh, it was born with Macron. Um, there are three political forces: the extreme left, the extreme right, and that sort of you know perhaps nebulous for some, but that 
big, big center that goes from center left to center right. And a lot of people, because the man is not going to be able to to seek a a third mandate, uh, a lot of people in his government, um, and um, we're talking about three people in in particular, uh, the most uh, visible and the most successful and popular uh, ministers he's had, the Prime Minister Edouard Philippe, who is uh, the former Prime Minister, who is also uh, the mayor of Le Havre, the current economy minister, Bruno Le Maire, and the current interior minister, Gérard Darmanin, um, are... You know, the, the, the three figures we're, we're thinking about to replace Macron certainly as a candidate for the centre, but uh, the three men come from uh, the centre-right and the former uh, Sarkozy's party. So um, they are wondering whether they should continue to build that bridge between the centre-left to the centre-right or whether they should revive a sort of more more centre, uh, centrist, uh, right-wing force. So they've got a few years or a couple of years to decide. Uh, but of course, two of them being ministers, uh, they cannot do it publicly. And and of course, also Macron's uh, party will have to decide on the candidate uh, in in um, you know two two years time. Mm. So um, in that, it's it's interesting because you know in 1969 we all thought um, what will become of Gaullism? Well, Gaullism survived General de Gaulle, and it did, of course, for at least 40 years. But Macron is not de Gaulle, yeah. um, so so that's an interesting question to be to be asking. I thought. Uh, finally, Agnes, I'm loving this story, which is about a change of font for the U.S. State Department, uh, and uh, well, people seem to be very much up in arms about this. <laughs> it's those details, you know. The devil is in the details. Yes, gone is Times New Roman and Enter Calibri, and also it's not a, only a question of font, but also uh, a question of of large, uh, you know, of size, uh, which is important too. Uh, it has been decided that the larger 14-point font would be uh, adopted. And why? Why did uh, Anthony Blinken um, send this memo to all U.S. embassies? Um, well, it's for just to make it easier for people with disabilities to use certain assistive technologies, such as screen readers. So it's a sort of accessibility push. But of course, some people. Uh, don't like it so much. Um, some people are even found it sacrilegious, um, and uh, and uh, others blame the millennials because apparently they are more into Helvetica. That's the fashionable uh, font. I'm told. I mean, personally, I love Garamond, uh, and I discovered recently that uh, it's very old. It uh, it dates back to the 16th century. So I love it even more. And uh, what about you? What what's your favourite font? My favourite is Georgia, 14 point, always 14 point because I'm so old and blind. But uh, Monocle, I think, uses Plantin, which is originally a a French font, also very, very old. Fascinating subject. We could talk about this for hours. Unfortunately, we have to go, but I'm quite sure we'll come back to this subject. Agnès Poirier in France, I hope that you'll be able to get around the city today and that life isn't too difficult for you uh, once the strike kicks in. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence, 
and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's time now for a Culture News Roundup and joining me in the studio is the arts journalist Amar Rose Abrams. Welcome. Oh, good morning. Uh, Now, let's talk about the Parthenon marbles again. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is just such a long-running saga, isn't it? It is. I mean, uh, the 200-year saga. But um, basically, it seems that things have got to what I think is quite a productive point. But the brakes are, um, to quote the story, being pumped because uh, the uh, Greeks have an election coming up and I think they don't want it to overshadow that. So everything's on pause until they have a new government next year. Mm. But wouldn't there need to be a, 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 a government uh, a bill? Wouldn't there need to be a change in the law here in Britain for them to be returned? Well, this is interesting because I think they're trying to do a long-term loan which would get around any legal challenge that was mounted to stop the marbles going over. I think conversations between George Osborne and Mitsotakis have come to the point where Mitsotakis would like the whole of the freeze. Osborne is saying, we'd like to give you part of the freeze for less time than you might like it. And it's got to this point where they're kind of getting down to the detail. But it seems that long-term loan gets around any change in the law. How extraordinary. When we could just reproduce them, we'd both have a set. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about a kind of similar story, actually, because this is the Australian artist, Peter Doig, uh, and he's having to prove that he didn't paint certain works. This is such a strange story. Basically, uh, a pe- uh, there was an inmate in Canada called Peter Douage who sold a work to one or to a, a guard, a prison guard, who then um, tried to sell it. And when he took it to a dealer in Chicago, uh, and uh, Peter Bartlow, um, they tried to get it authenticated by Peter Doig, who <laughs> sells his paintings for colossal sums of money. I think for a while he was the most expensive living artist. And um, so... They took it to him, but this is where the story gets very strange because Peter Doig could never have been Peter Douage and couldn't have painted this painting. I think in court he did say, I would don't think I could have painted this painting when I was the age that this painting is signed at, which was 1976. And he would have been a teenager and he wasn't in prison. So he had to kind of prove that he wasn't this other man and it was proven in court and now a judge has awarded him 2.5 million which he's going to give to uh prison art charities but how bizarre because was he he wasn't even claiming to be him he had done it in his own name yes very strange story it's very odd it came to court i think there was quite a lot of controversy in chicago where it came to court because obviously it was public money being spent and people were like but they're different people (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> quite, quite extraordinary. Okay, well, let's go on to this piece of news, which is extraordinary. After 10 years, yes. brand new album from John Cale. Very exciting. The wonderful John Cale, founder member of the Velvet Underground. And obviously, he went on post Velvets to do so much, you know, so much amazing avant garde music. But this album is less avant-garde I would say there's a lot of collaborations on there there's collaboration with a kind of hot punk band Fat White Family there's a collaboration with the Animal Collective and it's quite atmospheric um, the uh, the album's called Mercy sorry I should say it's very atmospheric almost like soundtrack style music but very kind of melodic and sung and classic song structure so I think people are going to really, really like it. There's three tracks available to listen to on uh, where you get your streaming services. Night Crawling, Story of Blood and Noise of You. And I just think it's fantastic. You've heard it? Yes, yes. Uh, Kale, of course, is at 80 now. Yeah. Uh, which is extraordinary that he's still churning out not just music, but new music and music that he's really making an effort to move forward into a different realm. Absolutely. He's really he's still pushing the boundaries at 18. It's a, they're saying that um, his record company, Domino, is saying that he has taken 10 years making this record. And it's kind of a response to the turmoil that we've been experiencing in the world and the different politics and the, obviously all the everything that happened during the pandemic. And he said it's a reaction to loss, a lot of it. I think he said they were written during a pe- period of mourning. And so he feels like people are going to really connect with it because a lot of people have gone through a similar thing absolutely it's described as moving through the true dark night of the soul electronic torment towards vulnerable love songs and hopeful considerations for the future uh, and then of course goes on to talk about the curious young minds that he's working with and that's mo- one of the most wonderful aspects of this is 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 the new talent that he's supporting absolutely absolutely and it's just this wonderful kind of there's a la- the laurel halo an actress and then there's a, a duo sylvia and Esso and another pop singer um, that he's collaborated with and they it's the really it's really kind you can hear you can hear you can hear he's bringing his amazing experience to all these ama- these wonderful avant-garde artists that are right. coming up Emma Rose thank you very much yes. indeed uh, this is The Globalist on Monocle 24 <laughs> Japan's Meiji Jingu Stadium was built in 1926, and it's an important part of the country's sporting and cultural history. But now the structure is at risk of being torn down for redevelopment, prompting thousands of people to sign a petition against demolition. Well, Fiona Wilson is Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief, and she joins me on the line now. Fiona, tell us about the history of the building. Why does it occupy such an important position in the hearts of Tokyo's citizens? Hi, Georgina. Well, I mean, for a start, it's it's very old, this stadium. It was built in 1926 and it's a home, the home of, there are two big uh, baseball teams uh, in Tokyo and it's the home of one of them, Tokyo Yakult Swallows. Baseball is the biggest sport in Japan. It's really important and it's a fantastic stadium. Now, I have been to watch baseball there a few times. I don't know the first thing about baseball, but it's so lovely sitting there summer's evening. It's, you know, it's open to the skies. It's a really special place. And it's 
frequently voted one of the two top places that Japanese people like to see baseball. So it's very, very important. And it's also the location. It's in this amazing area. It's actually, it is a part of Meiji Shrine. It's the outer shrine of Meiji Shrine. And it was, you know, it's been for a century now, a big sort of green lung for uh, citizens of Tokyo. It's got um, softball pitches. It's got base a baseball um, place that, you know, anyone can play on. It's got a rugby stadium. And the whole thing is being demolished. Um, and it's very, very controversial. Well, so tell us about those redevelopment plans. Yeah, so it's been going on for a while, this plan. It's already been passed, but I think people are finally waking up to what's happening. This this wonderful green area is going to be <laughs> concreted over. They are going to rebuild a rugby stadium and, and the uh, the baseball um, ground for the Yakult Swallows, but they're also putting up several skyscrapers. So the whole experience of seeing this sort of open sky baseball will change. And also for the public who use the space, it's a place that people go at the weekend. There's a very famous avenue of ginkgo trees very very popular now they are going to be saved but only just they're going to build skyscrapers right next to this avenue and i think the whole atmosphere will change and it's going to be a mixed use some hotels offices and really just what tokyo probably doesn't need uh, and they're using the excuse that these are aging facilities um you know which could be applied <laughs> to any number of historic buildings and i think people are saying it doesn't need to be demolished if it needs work let's renovate it let's not uh, destroy it for good and is there a big campaign to stop this happening there has started to be a big campaign. So Robert Whiting, who's you know well known here, he writes, he's written several books about Japan and America and baseball. He started a petition uh, a few days ago already. He's you know he's got um, about thirteen thousand signatures, and I think people are suddenly realising what Tokyo is about to lose. And if you know Tokyo, it's a very very important space. The National Stadium is is part of this whole um, sporting open area, and it was you know destroying that National Stadium was quite controversial. But now that the whole area is going to be redeveloped. I think, uh, yeah, I think we're going to see some citizens up in arms. And already we saw, you know, during the autumn uh, ginkgo leaf viewing <laughs> season, which is quite a big thing in Tokyo, and people go and watch these amazing trees go golden. Some activists were already out you know, passing out flyers, telling people what was going to happen. And I think what's interesting is a lot of people hadn't really realised what this redevelopment was all about. Mm. You mentioned the author Robert Whiting, but of course it was also an inspiration for Japan's best-selling novelist, uh, Haruki Murakami. That's right. So Haruki Murakami, you know, famously was was watching a game, I think it was in 1978, you know, and it is the kind of place you can half be watching baseball, half be thinking about other things. And he said that that's where he first thought about writing a novel, watching, drinking a beer, watching a game. And it, it, it he went home and he started his first book, Hear the Wind Sing. So that night, apparently. So, yeah, you know, it, it's got so many memories for people in Tokyo. And it's, it's a very, very special place. And I think it would be a great loss to the city. Uh, and Fiona, finally, is this an ongoing problem then in Japan? Is the architectural heritage being sufficiently protected? You know, I'm, I'm on the side of protecting architectural heritage, so I think not. And I think too often they're using the excuse of we need to update facilities, that there's a general sense that everything needs to be modernised. And I think you're in danger of losing this amazing texture that Tokyo has. It's this mixture of old and new, some of it slightly ramshackle. We've got plenty of shiny new office buildings in Tokyo. And I think the question is, you know, where do we draw the line? Let's keep the older things as well. So, yeah, this is an ongoing battle. And this area particularly has been a big focus because already some of it was cleared for the Olympics um, in 2020. 
uh, or 2021, as it turned out. But I mean, I think the feeling is that many people are saying, come on, let's look after what we do have left. Fiona, thank you very much indeed. That was Fiona Wilson, our Tokyo Bureau Chief. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Laura Kramer, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parmintuan, and our studio manager today was Adam Heaton. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be with you all morning with uh, some great global tracks uh, and also our usual sharp programming. The briefing is live at midday London time. I'm Georgina Godwin, and I'll return on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.